Hey everybody, it's Matt Shu from Upright Health and welcome back to the Upright Health Podcast. In today's episode, I am thrilled to be talking with Katherine Jacobson-Raymond. She's an investigative journalist who wrote an amazing book on back pain. The book is called Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. If you have back pain, you need to get this book and if you know somebody with back pain, you need to give them this book. In today's episode, we are going to talk about some big topics in back pain. We're going to talk about PRP injections, we're going to talk about stem cell injections, we're going to talk about x-rays, MRIs, disc degeneration, arthritis, and what all that has to do with back pain. And we're going to talk about concrete steps that you can take to help yourself get out of back pain without unnecessary procedures that doctors want to push on you. I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Here we go. First of all, Catherine, I want to say thank you for joining me today on this call. For those of you listening who are not familiar with Catherine's work, she has been an investigative journalist for four decades. She's been a public speaker. She's published a New York Times bestseller, Carved in Sand, When Attention Fails and Memory Fades in Midlife. And this book that we're talking about today, Crooked, is the result of over six years of research into the back pain industry. So we are talking today with somebody who really knows the ins and outs of the back pain industry and has really gone through the trenches herself. So Catherine, the first question I want to ask you is what really inspired you? What really called you to write this book? Well, um, as anyone who has taken a look at the book knows, um, I had problems with my back from the time I was a teenager. And I always managed them. You know, it was a a minor inconvenience, but I took care of it. I, I exercised and I lived a perfectly normal life. And it wasn't until really the time that my first book was published and I went out on the road um, to do a lot of talks uh, to various groups all over the country. And I found myself in just agony. My, My back was really bothering me, my hip and my leg. And it occurred to me that unless I figured out a way to deal with this, I probably wasn't going to be writing a second book. Uh, Because the books I write require a a large amount of travel and interviewing and strange uh, and and airplanes and strange taxis and bad car rentals and awful motels. And, you know, it's not the most pleasant experience. Although, as I always say, it's a lot better than working at the airport. But, you know, (laughs) it's, it's not the most pleasant experience. So I decided I had to do something. And like most of us, um, I thought, well, you know, it's a medical problem. It'll have a medical solution. And I just need to go find myself the right practitioners. And off we go. Um, I'd already done a fair amount of physical therapy. I think I've been through three, you know, full sessions of physical therapy. Um, and I had um, also seen chiropractors and I'd had, a, you know, done uh, strength training with uh, exercise machines. You know, I'd really, I'd done yoga. I'd kind of been around and I made the assumption that if that stuff hadn't worked, um, and clearly it hadn't, uh, then what was needed was medical intervention. Mm -hmm. And as I started to look around, I realized that uh, from the perspective, not only of the patient, but of the, as an investigative reporter, which I have been for four decades, the evidence just was not good. And I sensed a lot of shenanigans. 
Um, unfortunately, um, I sensed those rather late in the game after I had actually uh, made the rounds of the, in the, the MRI machines and had a, a quote-unquote minimally invasive surgery, mm. um, which I'm sure was not necessary and certainly not to my benefit in the long run. Um, so that's really how it happened. Uh, because I noticed the patients had no idea what they were signing up for, um, and because they were understandably in pain, as I was, um, they had a tendency not to look too closely. So uh, they found themselves very often in a massive heap of trouble, uh, and that is what spurred me to write the book. So can you um, speak um, to that point? So, so you said uh, when people are in pain, they don't look too closely at what's going on or, or they're not informed about what's going no, on. You know, it's like, okay, you look around, you go, I got to find, I got to get out of this pain. You know, it's affecting my work life. It's affecting my home life. Um, you know, I'm losing friends because I don't want to go anywhere. Um, I, I, I've got to do something about it. And we're, you know, human beings are expedient folk and we're looking for the first thing that seems plausible and every week and even just this morning already i have had contact from people who say oh wow i i read about this cool thing on the internet and um it's it's prp or it's stem cells or mm -hmm. it's even even today artificial disc replacement and boy, that sounds like a good plan. Or what about this form of minimally invasive? Or how about this new injection? And, you know, I understand. I totally understand because I was there. But um, when you're in pain, you tend not to be willing to sit down and study a two-foot-high stack of peer-reviewed um, papers from medical journals. Right. You, you know, it's funny because we, um, I, I also receive emails like that, and we work with clients who, who ask us all the time, it's funny you mentioned PRP, but people ask us all the yeah. time, like, oh, should, should I do PRP for this? Should I do stem cell injections or whatever? So I'm, I'm curious, what kind of response do you give? Or do you give any response when well, you see that? Well, I, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not any kind of medical professional. I'm not any kind of therapist. I'm an investigative reporter. And so I work with what material is at hand. And that typically is a matter of looking at the evidence. And the evidence is very clearly that PRP and stem cells are not currently um, considered to be effective in the treatment of back pain. Um, they may be more effective in the treatment of knee pain and shoulder pain. I, I don't debate that at all. But because, um, and I'm not you know, I think one day maybe we will find a way to use these in the treatment of back pain. And I've certainly had my cage rattled a bunch by practitioners, usually um, anesthesiologists or, or interventional physiatrists who have decided that this is perhaps the best, uh, best way for them to continue to practice um, in this field, um, you know, and who, who really want to convince me that this works, but they haven't been able to show they, they haven't been able to show me numbers because it hasn't been going on long enough for one thing. They don't have a sufficient number of, of patients to enroll. Um, 
And I really wouldn't buy it until uh, I could see that five years out, people are in significantly improved. I mean, frankly, everybody thinks they're significantly improved by absolutely everything in the first five days. You know, that is not <laughs> that is not a good, especially if you just spent ten thousand bucks. You know, so so uh, that's a not a good indicator. And be, you know, because we know. Um, some stuff about the biology of the intervertebral disc mm -hmm. uh, that includes the fact that it is an anaerobic environment, meaning that in a vaguely healthy disc, there's really no oxygen. And the only way that it is fed is by um, um, nutrients coming through the, uh, the vertebral plate uh, into the disc and then they pass through and they go out the other side or uh, there's a, a kind of a hydraulic system that goes on. So imagine squeezing, releasing, squeezing, releasing, and that's how the disc eats. That's how a healthy disc gets its nutrients. But what it does not have is oxygen. And so um, that means that it's very hard for the cells inside a disc to survive under the best of circumstances. even they, they have a hard time and they die off as we get older. So now imagine you take a disc that's not healthy um, and you put baby stem cells in there and they aren't getting, they don't have nutrients, sufficient nutrients, and they don't have sufficient oxygen supply, they don't have to my knowledge, which I mean has to change on a daily basis because <laughs> this is an emerging field, yeah. but they don't have what it takes to survive. So you're injecting stem cells into an environment where they'll die. Um, and and I don't think we that anyone can sh has shown me yet that they've really found a way around it. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't heard that. I hope to do a podcast myself about stem cells in some time in the next year, but um, each one of these podcasts takes me about a lifetime to put together. <laughs> <laughs> so it may be a little while. And anyway, it's an emerging field, so it's okay, right? It's absolutely okay. And I would, be, I would definitely be looking forward to listening to, to that podcast. Um, so... So you mentioned, um, you know, injecting things into the spine here with stem cells. Um, there was a part in the book uh, where you talked about um, a, a paste, if I remember correctly. It was like a, some sort of a, a solution that would be injected into um, the vertebrae to ostensibly to improve healing of fractures of the vertebrae. Oh, Can well, that's ver vertebroplasty, that? mm -hmm. vertebroplasty, which, um, you know, has now really been shown to be um, entirely unnecessary. So could you uh, break down um, what vertebroplasty is for, for people? Okay, well, vertebroplasty is typically used when someone has a vertebral fracture and a vertebral compression fracture, which in generally occurs in older people. Um, it is often related to osteoporosis, and it's awfully painful when one occurs. Um, but the studies have shown that there is no benefit a year out, um, or even, I think, possibly six months out. I'd have to go back to the studies. Um, a year out uh, to that procedure, and it is costly, 
Uh, it has risks, especially for older people. Um, and it seems that um, it is basically entirely unnecessary and uncalled for. Um, if Some of your listeners might like to go to Crooked's Facebook page. Um, so that's Crooked colon the back book. And there I regularly post new and important studies. Oh, great. So you can find that study is, um, you know, I think I posted that maybe about a week and a half ago, um, but they're all there. And, and it seems, I mean, I have a, a lot of, the page has a lot of Facebook followers because if you're in the business per se, um, there's stuff you really want to know uh, that, and I, and I will post uh, studies from uh, peer reviewed journals. And then there's a lot of other things that are, uh, really a little bit more oriented for, to the uh, back pain patient. That um, sounds that sounds fantastic. So be That's... sure if your reader if your listeners are going there that they go to crooked colon the back book. They don't go to my personal Facebook page because um, they won't find what they're looking for okay. <laughs> there. <laughs> Great, another place for me to waste time on Facebook. Yeah. Not waste time. <laughs> it's not wasting time. Well, it's it's great. I I think it's very important for people to know what's being published because it's very it's true that you can find a study to support basically anything, um, but unless it really comes from an eminent journal, um, it's not worth your time. Uh, and it's very hard for people to tell the difference between marketing and um, actual evidence. And, and there's a lot of lying and cheating that goes on. Um, so there's a couple of things that I, I want to un unpack there with you. Um, I actually want to backtrack slightly. Um, you had talked about disc damage, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the whole story of um, spine, spinal arthritis and disc damage that shows up in x-rays and MRIs and um, how that relates or doesn't relate to people experiencing back pain and what you found through the studies you've read. Well, uh, what is now uh, very much confirmed is that what we see on scans, on MRIs and x-rays, um, does not necessarily relate to the pain that the individual is experiencing. And if you compare a healthy group of individuals who have had MRIs for other reasons or, or else they were in, used for experimental purposes, um, you will see that people have all kinds of artifacts in their spines. They have herniated discs and they have spinal arthritis and their facet joints look weird, and things are black, and things are um, out, of, out of alignment. And this is true of people who do not have back pain. It's universally true. And yet, because we, um, as a society, understandably, um, look to physicians for answers, um, it has become customary to get an MRI and see these artifacts, these anomalies, quote unquote, which are not in fact anomalies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, radiologists, um, this is changing now, and I think maybe partially due to my book, but radiologists send back reports that say 
um, you know, a degenerative disc disease at X level and people absolutely freak. But what they don't realize is that most people have degenerative, quote unquote, degenerative disc disease. It is not a disease. It's no more than my, you know, gray hair or uh, the fact that I need glasses because I'm 61 is a disease. I mean, it's perfectly, it's unfortunate. I'd rather not have either one of them, but it is perfectly standard. So um, many people are, uh, every day, I'm not kidding, I hear from two or three people who are really freaked out because they've been told that, you know, they have disc herniations at this level and that level and a black disc here and um, and now the favorite diagnosis is actually instability because insurance companies have largely stopped paying for surgery for, uh, it's not an indication, degenerative disc disease is not an indication for surgery anymore. So they found some new indications and instability is definitely one of them. Now, let me add that, um, it's a pretty good indication because, uh, what is still being paid for is um, really um, uh, disc decompression procedures uh, like microdiscectomy, laminotomy, laminectomy. These are procedures which are meant to, uh, one way or another, take some of the pressure off the nerve, uh, the afflicted nerve, and they're still being paid for. So there's a lot of those going on, and they're being done more often. Um, and if you keep pulling out bone and you keep pulling out disc, you will be unstable. And mm -hmm. then guess what? You'll be a candidate for spinal fusion surgery. Um, Which in itself, um, I remember reading there were some pretty shocking statistics you had in there for success rates for spinal fusion. Yeah. Well, because spinal fusion surgeries are usually performed on people who... Uh, understandably, are have not been very active. They are sometimes um, overweight, often to the point of obesity. Um, they're they're very deconditioned. Um, they are frequently um, dependent on opioids. Um, they are just terrible candidates for surgery for any kind of surgery. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're uh, frequently their spinal fusions are not, are not successful is not that surprising because they were bad candidates for surgery. Um, my brother recently did have a one-level spinal fusion. He had a situation where he had a, a cyst um, that was actually in uh, the joint and it was being compressed constantly every time he stood up. That thing had to go, and he was not particularly stable. They did fuse the joint, and uh, he's an athlete and in tremendous shape. And knock on wood, knock on wood, he's doing very well. Uh, so it's not a terrible um, sentence for everyone. Unfortunately, the people who undergo it are frequently not in a good position to, to recover. So, um, so you mentioned um, you mentioned the condition, right? Decondition. So that's something that as trainers we see a lot, right? So people come in, they're complaining about all kinds of things hurting. They've gotten the scans. They say, well, my back is arthritic, or my hip supposedly has this torn, and my shoulder is. Right. I notice everyone has something torn in their hips recently. Yes, it's a huge, huge, <laughs> growing diagnosis. 
with the surgery rates exploding, and it's something that you know I've personally been um, doing tons of research on. I, I think I shared that with you in email. Um, so it's 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 a big it's a spreading epidemic. Um, but people come in with all these um, tears and whatever, and they come in extremely deconditioned, unable to um, really even pick up a book safely. Their movement patterns, their mechanics. Wait, let's let's let's. Go, let's unpack that. They are perfectly able to pick up a book safely. They just think they are. They are experiencing fear avoidant behavior that has told them that something very bad, possibly fatal, will occur if they were to pick up the book, the bag of groceries, or um, you know, their briefcase. That, that's whatever. A, that's a great. They are not. In the, they are not unsafe. They perceive themselves to be unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they basically they're living. So what we see is their their you know their whole lives kind of shrink, right? What, yes. What, what they're able to do, what they think they're able to do, shrinks because they've been told you know this is damaged beyond anything you can ever fix. Um, <laughs> And when we, you know, when we see this, you know, you know, from our perspective, it's like, hey, you need to actually just train your body to do these things correctly, right? Just, just do these in a way that isn't harmful to your body. Pick this up, practice picking up something heavier, practice picking up something heavier. Um, so this, this, you know, from our perspective, there's this whole conditioning of, of, just muscle, right? Just training that to be able to function correctly, training your mind not to go to that fear zone. Um, have you seen, uh, I mean, it, it, from your book, it's clear that you've kind of seen that, um, that kind of deconditioning for yourself and for others. Can you speak about what you've seen for, like you mentioned your brother and his results with surgery. Can you speak a little bit more about conditioning and, and well, my brother is, as I said, he's an athlete. He's 55 and, you know, he's really in excellent shape. There's probably not an ounce of fat on him. And yet I really did not want him to undergo that spinal fusion until I realized that the cyst was present and he was not going to get better otherwise. But um, in terms of deconditioning, you know, it's, it's, it's really um, a situation where medical professionals and therapists and even sometimes um, exercise professionals say be careful don't do that um, you know go easy rest does that hurt does that hurt does that hurt and you want you know yes you can see why I mean I work with a trainer and she will ask me these questions if if it's a known fact that I've come in and I've just been on, gotten off a seven hour plane trip and I'm all very creaky. I mean, she will want to know if she's killing me, you know, but she'll find a new or different way to push me. You know, it's not like, okay, I think you should go lie down on the sofa. It's, you know, it's, we're, yeah. we're doing this thing and we're going to find another way around. And, and too many trainers are really one trick ponies. You know, they know one story and not more. They know one story and um, this is, uh, they, there has to be, to have a good rehab trainer has to know how to get in to the problem zone 
five different ways. Yeah. If it's on your back, if it's on your feet, if it's on your stomach, if it's hanging from the rafters, it doesn't really matter. You got to get there because it will not get better unless you get there. So you cannot, I mean, a large, I see a lot of athletes uh, call me or write to me and they say, you know, like I've been doing sports my entire life. How can, what do you mean I'm deconditioned? And I said, well, the, for many, many athletes, um, particularly those who are not professional athletes who have, you know, coaches like with them all day long, but many athletes, um, they're very strong in certain places, but they're also very weak in other places. And I think a good example of this is tennis players because they're assuming I say if they're right-handed, the entire right sides of their bodies very developed and the left sides are not. And they may have a huge ridge of muscle along the right side of the spine and nothing on the left side. Mm -hmm. And they frequently have no nothing going on in the glutes, min or max. Um, And it's, um, I always say, it embarrasses, I'm sure I've embarrassed hundreds, if not thousands of men at this point by asking them to please show me their glutes. (laughs) Could you just pick that shirt up? I need to see what you got going on under there. And um, frequently they're just flat as a pancake if you have have a back (laughs) Yeah, and, so, I, and I was like that too. I'm so, I was. <laughs> I write about that in the book, so it's no secret. But you know, I'm so glad it, you brought that up for everyone who's listening. Um, actually, a few years ago, I was working with a client, and he came up with the idea of um, us making a T-shirt that just says "Power to the Glutes." Um, <laughs> it's a good idea. Yeah, so I actually have that T-shirt. Um, if but, you're, uh, if you're, glu- you know, there's more. We, I can think of other better T-shirts to even, you know, like, um, you know, it's better with a booty. Oh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, better with a booty. You're gonna write that one down. <laughs> uh, we can make a. We can go into business now with that kind of T-shirt. Perfect. Uh, perfect. I don't think I have a conflict of interest. Um, <laughs> Well, we can make a study that uh, looks at the efficacy of wearing that T-shirt. And... You're just wearing a T-shirt. You don't do anything. You're just wearing <laughs> the T-shirt. Right, man? Well, it's, it's true that people believe somehow that their spines hold them up. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, we teach in, in school, you know, the most uh, arcane topics, uh, but we do not really actually teach anatomy or physiology and so it is amazing to me how people with incredible educations that I know have exactly no idea of what's going on back there and the fact that in fact your spine will not be holding you up I mean if anything your pelvis is going to be uh, essential in this uh, your you know everything about your shoulder girdle will be essential in this and and people uh, you know, because of the medical model, largely, are focused on the spine. Um, it's a little overplayed, to be honest, you know? Mm-hmm. I fully agree. Fix every, you know, you go in there and do things to every disc. It's not going to help at all unless the body is prepared to support that spinal column. That's that's definitely, I think, a huge education piece for people. That's That's something that we usually are spending weeks, if not months, with you know, new people that we, we work with, we're spending a lot of time explaining to them, you know, when you pick this up, it's not just about your back per se. Yes, it's doing something, but 
your glutes, your hamstrings all need to know how to pull on your pelvis, stabilize your pelvis, move it, and your spine, maybe it has to stabilize, but it's not the thing. The, those muscles are not the only things working. And really, if you're not using your glutes and hamstrings, you're really forcing your spine to do a lot, right? Right. So. And I really believe um, that most of my issues were from that lack of development. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, and you know, I rode horses as a young person, um, and I had a lot of trouble actually sitting very straight. I rode English style and you're supposed to be ramrod straight. And I had a lot of trouble sitting straight. Um, and at one point my shoulders were in, in a brace in order to pull them back. Well, if I could not get myself upright, then there was a lot of muscle development that was missing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should have been working on that, but no one knew that, you know, it's like, if you can't do it naturally, we'll just do it artificially. Um, so I really think that it is hard to convince people that they need to develop these supportive parts of their bodies that they don't relate. Uh, and I, and of course, most people are, you know, obsessed with the notion of the core. Um, they think that exists somewhere around their navels. Um, and they don't understand that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the core goes pretty much from your knees to your neck. Um, and if everything in there is not working properly, you are much more likely to have relapses of pain. Um, and it's very hard to convince people of that. And I've had to stop about a million people from just doing, you know, your standard crunches because they think they'll strengthen their cores, but right. meanwhile, they're just destroying themselves. Um, but I think a super important part of this, Matt, is, um, and one that uh, I just came back from Australia where I spent um, a lot of time with Lorimer Mosley and his team. And mm-hmm. uh, if you are not familiar with that work, you definitely want to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, yep. And he um, and we we really looked at the uh, psychosocial components of back pain. Um, and these are powerful. And for every back pain, chronic back pain patient that shows up, you know, through email or however they get to me, um, I'd say a grand majority of them are dealing with very stressful life situations one way or another. And and when you are a trainer, um, you might learn more about their situations than if you were their physicians. Oh, I mean, at least when absolutely. I walk in every, every, whenever I do twice a week, um, my trainer says, so what's up, you know, and I'll say, well, I just heard from my son that blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, that's a stress factor or, you know, or everything's fine. But it's that, that um, one of the things that Mosley talks about is that when the balance tips in your life, and the negative is consistently outweighing the positive, mm-hmm. and you are having a hell of a time shifting that back. That, or you maybe you've lost hope, or maybe you don't even remember that it can be shifted. Um, that's where pain, really chronic pain, can really become entrenched. You know, this is actually something that we've talked about with with uh, clients, is you know, and and people who email us about chronic pain stuff. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, the doctor said it's got to be this, right? And, and 
I, I had my own very long journey with chronic pain. I had all kinds of issues. I Basically, by my mid-20s, I was not able to do anything that I wanted to do. I could barely even type for more than a couple minutes. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah, so, I mean, my back, my hips, my knees, my feet, everything was just in constant chronic pain. And, you know, over the years, I just got really jaded going to the doctor. And so what I, you know, what I put to clients now and to people now is, um, you know, just think about think about the situation. You're going to see a doctor who at, at a maximum has 15 minutes to talk with you. Do you think that person is going to have a full understanding of everything that's affecting your overall health? Mm -hmm. That they're going to understand what your body needs to feel better. Um, right. It's, it's a, such a tall order, right? You can't, like, I, I've worked with a lot of people now with chronic pain, but I know 15 minutes is not enough time. No, 15 <laughs> minutes is enough to make a medical diagnosis, whether it happens to be right or wrong. And sometimes it's right, and a lot of times it's not, because if it were so right, people wouldn't have seen 20 practitioners, you know. And, um, you know, as a, as a trainer, you really have an opportunity to, uh, what I say is change the chip in, in someone's brain. It's hard it's hard to do, but focusing on the fact that in the case of back pain, once, you know, all the really noxious things have been eliminated, this person does not have cancer, this person uh, does not have an infection, this person, you know, there's nothing cataclysmically wrong with this person, and we know this because the person has been to 10 doctors, right? right. Yep. <laughs> At that point, it's really time to say, hurt does not mean harm. Right. This is, yes, if you stick your hand on the stove, hurt means harm, but this is not what we call nociceptive input anymore. It is being generated, the pain is being generated by the brain. The brain is not a reliable reporter in this case. So as you know, I have to pick up and go here in the next six minutes. Yeah, so, so, let's, uh, so let's actually wrap up. I guess one final question then is, um, what, you know, what do you hope people take away from your book, or what can they take away from even this talk? So you, you mentioned, you know, you can find a study to support anything. You know, doctors will give you a diagnosis, whether it's right or wrong. Um, you know, what can somebody do if they've, they have back pain, they have these things going on, what should they be keeping in mind to make sure that their backs get better, that their bodies get better, and that their lives get better? Well, take a sit down with yourself with a pad of paper and take a look put a column write a write a column down the middle and on one side put down what you feel makes you feel safe and good in your life and on the other side put down what makes you feel imperiled and and victimized and i think for people who are dealing with chronic pain, uh, they're going to see a lot in that victimized, unsafe column. And then it's time to start to add things to the positive pro column, the safe column. And that could be coming to see, you're going to see your trainer twice a week and seeing that you slowly, incrementally, um, with some setbacks, because you will always have them, build strength, uh, you become more resilient. 
um, you rec begin to recognize that your fear avoidant behavior is not doing anything for you. Um, that you may have been told at some point that you should never X, Y, or Z. And there's a long list of things. Huge Some list. of them are just unbelievable what people have been told they should never do. <laughs> never lift <laughs> and, anything over your head. Never. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So that means like never take a plane because you might have to put something in the overhead compartment. No, that's never, bad for never, you. never, never, never. And, and the world, as you just said, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and is not a benefic benefit to that patient and it will not get that patient better. So you begin to accrue. I, I really believe this now, and, and it's something that came to me mostly after my book was published, that if you consistently and intelligently add to the safety positive column, that life gets better and you feel safer and you can be more active. And that means, you know, it doesn't mean, yes, well, what makes you feel good is getting on your sofa with a big, you know, box of donuts. I mean, <laughs> that might make you feel safer, but you have to be a little more introspective than that, because in the long run, that is not a safety measure. Um, so if it means taking a walk with a friend, if it means, um, you know, going out and having a drink with a colleague, if it means taking a day off from work and going to walk on the beach, Whatever it means, you start to slowly, tiny things does not mean quitting your job and, you know, running off with your neighbor's wife. That's not what it means. The little <laughs> so, things. <laughs> the little things. It's the little things that count. And moving, um, you know, consistently um, is obviously important. And staying the heck out of the hands of internet marketers who want to do things to you. <laughs> that is not the place to be. So anyway, um, I hope everyone will uh, take a trip to my website, which is at CJ Raymond, which is CJ R A M I N dot com. And also um, maybe to the Facebook page, which is crooked colon the back book. Um, and we'll, um, we'll, and I'll see you. I'll see you online. <laughs> yeah, we will provide links uh, in the descriptions and in the notes for, for this episode. And um, yeah, there's so much more I wanted to unpack with you, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad. Well, we maybe can do that another time. I would love to. I would love to. So let's uh, let's figure that out, um, and I'll let you bounce and get on to your next thing. Thanks so much for taking the time. I need a drink of water before the next one. I could tell you that. <laughs> have some water, right, have some yeah. tea, take some breaths, yeah. and um, yeah, <laughs> get some stretches in, and then we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much, Catherine. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for the links that Catherine mentioned and also a link to pick up her book, Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. It's really a must read for anyone with back pain. And if you're looking for exercises that you can try to get your body moving and to reduce that fear that you might have around moving your body, then be sure to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash uprighthealth. If you want things that are specifically geared towards spinal mobility or hip mobility, then you can always just type in upright health back pain or upright health hip pain and you'll find all kinds of free videos there. I hope you find all of these resources helpful and as always, I hope you remember that pain sucks, life shouldn't.